Well, we've come to our 19th lesson. I was thinking about that yesterday. That's almost half a year we've been talking about this idea of Bible geography. And, and I hope to put just a little toe in the water of the New Testament this morning. Um, you don't have to sound so excited about that, Brother Fountain. Oh, okay. All right. You're excited about the New Testament, not that we're finally making progress. I appreciate that. Progress, good. Um, but Second Kings chapter 24, we talked about this passage a little bit last week, um, but I want to lay this foundation. Second Kings chapter 24, um, and beginning in verse number 10, this is, well, you'll gather that as we read it, you'll understand why we're reading this. It says this in Second Kings chapter 24, uh, verse number 10, at the time the servant of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out of the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign and carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, even ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained save the poorest of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, and the king's mother, and the king's wives, and his officers, and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon." And all the men of might, even seven thousand, and craftsmen, and smiths a thousand, and all that were strong, and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made Mattaniah his father's brother king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. We mentioned that last week. But I want to understand what's going on here in this passage, because this is setting the stage, if you will, for one of the last events of the Old Testament as far as recorded history. And here we see uh, the Babylonian captivity. But beginning with the Assyrian siege and captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., uh, the empirical landscape of the Bible begins to change dramatically. Uh, Israel, as we've come to know it, uh, from Abram through the death of Solomon, was no longer the land of Israel. We call it Israel, but it's not possessed by Israel anymore. And here we see in Second Kings chapter 24, in 586 B.C., the two remaining tribes of the southern kingdom of Judah, that's it. They're conquered, and, and there is no Israel in a proper sense. We understand that. I read something fascinating. This isn't in our notes. Or I watched something fascinating yesterday about Bible archaeology, and it talked about uh, the ten lost tribes and how there aren't really ten lost tribes. And what was fascinating to me was during the Assyrian siege as uh, Shalmaneser came down around the Mesopotamia and worked his way down, and they came into um, Samaria to take over the northern kingdom, that a lot of the northern kingdom... Israelites fled south into Judah, and it's said that during that time period, the, uh, the, the total number of people in Jerusalem swelled by 15 times. And so we think, well, where, where are all these remnants of all the tribes going to come from? Weren't they all taken captive and then assimilated with the Assyrians? No, all of those tribes had people in Jerusalem. 
which is amazing to me because the Lord is the word is true, right? right? And then now here they are captive, um, but not all of them are taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And so this empirical landscape begins to change dramatically. And for the remainder of Scripture, for the remainder of Scripture, really, Israel would be under occupation and rule from different empires. First Assyria, then Babylon. And then as you work through the New Testament or into the New Testament period, you'll run into the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, Alexander, right? He came and waged his giant conquest. And then Ptolemy and the Seleucids, and then you end up with Rome, which is where we're going to enter the New Testament here in just a second. Um, Our study last week brought us forward in history to here, 586 B.C., uh, where we saw the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, as told in 2 Kings 24, which we just read. This great reign of the Babylonian Empire would continue on until falling to King Cyrus of Persia and the Medo-Persian Empire in 539 B.C., to help put this all in a little bit more perspective, I want you to look at this chart. These are the dates of some historical facts as well as of the Old Testament figures who lived during the period of the divided kingdom and Assyrian captivity, but also uh, during Babylonian captivity. This chart will help you navigate the Old Testament. And when I first started looking at this years ago, And then even yesterday, as I was compiling all this information again, it just really starts to blow your mind a little bit. Because I don't know about you, but for me, it's made a dramatic change in my understanding of what exactly is happening in these 39 books of Scripture, mainly from Judges on forward through Malachi. But look at the divided kingdom. So we understand um, right before the divided kingdom, Solomon was king, and we see in 960 that Solomon builds his temple, and then the kingdom divides, and then we see some famous men of Scripture that we understand, Elijah and Elisha, somewhere around 870 for Elijah to 844, and then Elisha, 845, uh, to 800, taking over, we understand that, Elisha and the mantle, and took over from Elijah. And all of this is happening there, and, and Ahab and all of that stuff is happening in this divided kingdom. During this time period, Jonah goes to Nineveh. You say, why is that such a big deal? Because Nineveh was the capital city of who? The Assyrians. And why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Because these were the people who were the enemies of Israel. It hadn't quite happened yet in 722, but I'm sure word had gotten around the land that Assyria was coming. And I'm sure there was a measure of dread as Assyria, that you just don't raise up overnight and become this great empire. They were building up to this. And in 791, roughly around there, Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, Nineveh. So when you read the book of Jonah, I want you to understand it's during this time period leading up to Assyrian captivity. <clears throat> Some historical things that happened during this time that are not mentioned in Scripture, but we hear about them every four years, is the first Olympic Games happened in Greece in 776 B.C. It's nice to tie your Bible to, shall we call it, secular history, because the Bible is as accurate as any historical textbook out there. 
In fact, the Bible is more accurate than any historical. If the textbook is wrong, I'm sorry, the textbook is wrong. But we do understand the first Olympic Games. We also see the founding of Rome in 753 B.C. And so for 700 years, the Roman Empire is going to begin to grow and abound. And we're going to see a big play uh, from them in the first century B.C., during this time, and this is where this will really help your Bible reading and understanding, is you can look at the major and the minor prophets and you begin to link them to a time frame. Amos was during this time of the divided kingdom. And you can see I denoted it there uh, with that little triangle that Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah, he kind of went back and forth, mostly with the northern kingdom, uh, 760 through 673. So Isaiah straddled captivity, if you will, right? 722, Assyria came and conquered uh, the northern kingdom, and Isaiah kind of straddles that captivity. Hosea, 758 through 725, he comes up to the doorstep of captivity in 722. Micah straddles captivity as well. He was a kingdom uh, to a uh, prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, 738 through 698. Nahum was not a prophet to either the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom. He prophesied about the destruction of Nineveh. 658 through 615, Jeremiah, he was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. 650 to 582. So uh, Jeremiah straddled the second captivity, right? He was alive uh, during... Uh, obviously, the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom, but he dot, or his his work stopped. These are not birth and death dates, mind you. His work stopped in 582 after that second uh, captivity that we read about in Second Kings 24. Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Daniel, and I think so. Here's what I think happens: is we read a lot of these things, and because of the way that our Bible is laid out we tend to think that the events that happened in Malachi are later than the events that happened in, in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, right? But they're not. In fact, you can take some of those later prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Zephaniah, some of those are later here during the Babylonian captivity. Look at that second uh, part of this table, Babylonian captivity from 586 to 539, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 to 321. I'll throw this in there because you'll see it a little bit, but Malachi, when, when Malachi was done, is roughly 420. And so there's a significant portion of the Medo-Persian Empire that's not necessarily addressed in Scripture. And so from 420, moving on forward, we'll talk, talk about that in just a, a second. In 538, the first remnant with Zerubbabel returns. Now, class, where is that recorded for us in Scripture? The first wave. Ezra. Where do you find Ezra in your Bible? Way before... Does that make sense? That we need to understand that Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that, that this is happening, Esther is happening during this time period. It's, it's later than Jeremiah, chronologically. Do we understand that? 
And I think this gives us greater perspective about what exactly is happening uh, when we view it from this. I know this doesn't necessarily have to do with geography, but it does when we're talking about world empires, right? Zerubbabel comes back in 538, and that first wave comes back. The temple starts to be rebuilt in 536. Where are they coming back from? Babylonian captivity, but Babylon was going to fall under, the, under Darius and Cyrus to the Medes and the Persians. And so, was it Cyrus or Darius? I think it was Cyrus that gave them liberty to go back, and he made a decree that they were going to rebuild uh, the temple. And then Zechariah comes, and Haggai. Esther, we see at 478 B.C. This is a hundred years after the fall of Jerusalem because Esther happens in captivity. Ezra goes back in 457. Joel prophesies around 450. And then Nehemiah makes his return uh, from 444 to 430. And then it stops. You can see some of those that crossed over between the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity when Judah fell in 586. But I want to talk about where we left off here, this undoing of the Babylonian Empire for just a second. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel all prophesied that Babylon would fall to the Medes and Persians. Isaiah said this, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, the Babylonians, uh, which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Jeremiah 51, that entire chapter, speaks specifically about the impending destruction of Babylon and even mentions the exact reason why God was going to destroy them with the Medes and Persians. We read about that in 2 Kings 24, but Jeremiah says this in 51.11, he says, Make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord hath raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his device is against Babylon to destroy it. Notice this, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. What is it that Nebuchadnezzar had done in 2 Kings 24? He had taken the gold instruments of the temple that Solomon had made, and he took them, and he defiled them. And so the Lord was exacting vengeance. The fall of the undoing of the Babylonian Empire. Da- Daniel's interpretation, we'll get to this map in just a second. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 foretold of the impending destruction of Babylon. In Daniel 5, we see Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, uh, making a mockery of the utensils of the temple. Here it was, the, this whole reason uh, why they were going to be destroyed. Uh, and using them as drinking vessels during a wicked party, uh, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand uh, of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the, ch- the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that king and his, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. In Daniel five one, that's exactly what happened. Uh, we're told about in Second Kings twenty four, and exactly what Jeremiah said. This is why they're going to be destroyed. And who was the destroyer then of the Babylonian Empire? It was the Medes and the Persians. They would continue until the fall uh, of to Alexander the Great in 331. And you can read all about that. And Daniel ends up straddling both those empires from the Babylonian captivity into what would then merge into being taken captive essentially as a spoil of war by the Medes and the Persians and Cyrus and Darius and all of those. You say, what does that have to do with anything? 
because it's in the middle of this Medes and Persian Empire that we come to Malachi and it stops. What stops? The Old Testament. The Old Testament stops. And there's going to be what we would call the 400 years of silence or the intertestament, intertestament period. Leading up into all that, during this 400 years of silence, is the Roman period. I want you to look at that map really quick. This is 117 A.D., this map. Look at the massive scale of the Roman Empire. You say, where is Israel? Okay, do you see the Mediterranean Sea? Do you see Cyprus, the island? Just to the right of that, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, as we've talked about, is Judea. You say, Judea? Yes, that's the Roman name for this land. And Syria. Remember Damascus? Saul was headed to Damascus, right? Syria. That's Damascus, that area, okay? But you'll also see some other things on this map. Look north of that, towards the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Cilicia, Lycia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia. This whole region is Asia Minor. Macedonia, over to the left. Dalmatia. Finally, you keep going left and you see Italy and Rome. You say, what does that have to do with this? Because that's the gospel or the book of Acts in a picture. That's it. This is where it happens. And under the Roman Empire is where your New Testament is going to happen. So from 420, the the silence leading up into the changeover from B.C. to A.D., Rome is expanding to grow. And this is the height of their empire in 117 A.D. So obviously it wasn't quite that big uh, in the first century of B.C. leading into the first century of A.D. But that just gives you a scope and an understanding. Now what's interesting about that is because of the influence of Alexander the Great, the language now was Greek. And do you have any idea what our New Testament language is? Greek. Under the influence of Alexander uh, the Great. Have you heard this phrase? Hellenistic Jews? Greek-speaking Jews? A lot of them didn't even know Hebrew. Why? Because they had been taken over and under the influence of all these occupying countries, and Greek became the language of the time. And even Romans spoke Greek. And so the Roman period comes in this period between the Old and New Testament called the Intertestamental Period. Uh, you may have heard it described as the 400 years of silence, but while we do not have record during this time of Scripture, uh, of, of this period of Scripture as it relates to the children of Israel, that's why we call it the silent years, uh, we do know that God was at work during this time, paving the way for Christ to come. We sang this morning, my Father planned it all. So though Scripture is silent concerning the historical record of these 400 plus years, God was not done working. And I love that thought, and we'll talk about that at our conclusion. 
Um, at the beginning of these roughly 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi's ministry to the beginning of John the Baptist, the known world was under Babylonian rule. This would last until 331 when Alexander the Great and his Greco-Macedonian army would conquer and rule until 323 B.C. Over the course of the next 150 years, the Jews were greatly influenced by Hellenistic ideology. Many adopted Greek names and learned to both write and speak Koine Greek. Following the Ptolemaic and Seleucid and Hasmonean dynasties, the Roman general Pompey captured Jerusalem in 63 B.C. This transition to Roman rule would now bring us to the doorstep of our New Testament. Everything we experience in Scripture, aside from unfulfilled prophecy, happens during this Roman period of history. Beginning during the rule and reign of Herod the Great, the appointed Roman ruler over the land of Israel. Now we're getting into a little bit more cultural understanding, but we need to understand from a geographical perspective why this culture has taken over the Holy Land. It's because Rome has taken over the Holy Land. Do we understand that? The Roman Empire is the foundation, if you will, of everything that you're going to read in the Old Testament. From interactions with Herod the Great to all the Herods, Agrippa, right? All the Tetrarchs to the governors, Pontius Pilate, Claudius, anybody that you see mentioned, these are all Roman government officials. And so let's talk a little bit about first century Roman governments. Until the first century BC, Rome was a republic. But right before we enter into the period of the New Testament, this is a name you'll remember. Julius Caesar made a power play. Even defeating Pompey, whom we know had just recently conquered Jerusalem. Fearing a tyrannical rule, the Roman Senate conspired to have Caesar, Julius Caesar, assassinated. They were successful, but Julius's nephew, Augustus, defeated the conspirators and established himself as the first Roman emperor. So we've gone from a republic to a monarchy. And that first Augustus, or that first Caesar, Caesar Augustus, is the individual that we see during Christ's birth. Look at this. Caesar Augustus was from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. He was emperor during the birth of Christ. Look at this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor. So who sent the decree? Caesar Augustus. Who was he? The emperor of Rome, who had just squashed the conspirators from the Senate that had killed his uncle. And he was now ruling as a monarchy for the first time in Roman history instead of a republic. And he sends out this decree. What did he have to do with Israel? What did he have to do with the land of Christ's birth? They owned it. I know that seems rather obvious, but for some people it's not. What do the Romans have to do with our New Testament and God's chosen people of Israel? They're still captive. They're still, and honestly, that understanding helps dig into the mindset a little bit of the disciples. When they were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for someone to come and establish the kingdom. Not the heavenly kingdom that we know that Jesus came to establish, but the earthly kingdom. 
You say, why is that significant? Because they wanted someone, like they thought the Maccabeans were going to do, and come and eradicate Rome from their life. And Jesus didn't quite fit that picture. One day, he will rule and reign over all. It's not that time yet. Why? Because he's extended this period of grace so that all men might be saved. And so we see Caesar this understanding of first century Roman governance. Following Augustus was Tiberius in AD 14 through 37. It was during his cruel rule that Christ ministered, died, and was resurrected. You can read about that in Luke chapter 3. Some others of significance for this New Testament period would be Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. They ruled during the majority of the first century. It was Nero, in fact, whom Paul had his heart set on seeing. You look back at that map at the top of that previous page and you see Rome all the way over there. Paul was trying to get there. He was trying to get all the way across the Roman Empire to Rome to get to Nero in the middle of the first century, somewhere between AD 54 and AD 68. AD 90 is when scholars believe that John penned both the gospel record bearing his name as well as the book of Revelation. This would have likely been during the reign of Domitian in AD 81 through 96. And the events of Acts 11 through at least Acts 18 happened during the reign of Claudius, AD 41 through 54. You say, why is that important? Because we ought to have a thorough understanding of what is happening in Scripture. Why? Because Scripture has one interpretation, has many applications, but it has one interpretation. Are you tired of people taking Scripture out of context? then you need to know the context. And the context of your New Testament is the Roman Empire from a geographical and government perspective. Okay, So, who else do we deal with from a Roman perspective in the New Testament? Well, the emperor, of course, was Caesar. He lived in Rome. And then we have... This is a little bit confusing because in the Roman structure, this would have been called a procurator. Sometimes you'll hear it mentioned as a prefect. In Luke chapter 2, they're mentioned as a governor. These are all the same person from a Roman tiered government standpoint or position. Not only does Luke 2 mention Caesar, but it also mentions Cyrenius, governor of Syria. Where is Syria? It's the Roman province north of Judea, right? And so as you go up the coast, if you imagine with me the Holy Land, and you go up the coast and you move from Tel Aviv or Joppa, right, which in our understanding of the Old Testament would have been uh, Philistia, and you work your way coastal, you'll run through Caesarea Philippi. Sorry, Caesarea Maritime. And you'll run through the port city of Caesarea, and then you'll work your way up north, and Jesus mentioned these two towns, Tyre and Sidon. That's Syria. Those are the coastal cities of this Roman province of Syria on the Mediterranean. And we have ruling here, mentioned in the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Cyrenius, governor of Syria. In first century Roman government, a governor and a procurator or a prefect were one and the same. A procurator was a civilian, a prefect was a military man. In ancient Rome, these leaders were in charge of the financial affairs of a province or an imperial governor of a minor province. The 1901 Jewish Encyclopedia says this about the Roman governor of the province of Judea. The procurator resided in Caesarea. This is Caesarea Maritime, the coastal port city, uh, where he had his praetorium, a building which was formerly the palace of Herod, 
You can read about that in Acts 23. Only on special occasions, particularly during the Jewish high festivals, did the procurator go to Jerusalem, where also he had a praetorium, again a palace of Herod, which at the same time was used as barracks. And perhaps the most famous of all Roman governors in Scripture was who? Pontius Pilate. He who set free Barabbas and condemned Jesus to death. The following excerpt further explains the role of Roman governor during the first century. Notice this. It's from a book on Roman law relating to the New Testament. It says, At the opening of the New Testament, Judea and Galilee were under the rule of Herod the Great as parts of a single kingdom. Herod was a Roman citizen and was under the control of the emperor Augustus Caesar. So long as Herod kept order in his kingdom, remained loyal to Rome, and provided a buffer against enemy states, he remained in control of his client state. But after Herod's death, the kingdom of Judea was divided by Rome into three tetrarchies ruled by three of Herod's sons, Archelaus over Judea, Herod Antipas over Galilee and Perea, and Philip over the northern area east of the Jordan. In the north, Herod Antipas remained in control of the Galilee, Uh, during the entire lifetime of Jesus. But in the south, not long after taking power over Judea, Archelaus was removed by Augustus because of complaints about his rule in AD 6. The fear expressed by Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders that the Romans would remove them from their positions of power and take away their place if they did not restrain the wonder of workings of Jesus, you can read about that in John 11, was obviously based in real-life political experiences. An understanding of the New Testament is rooted in an understanding of the culture in which they lived. And the culture in which they lived was under this Roman rule. And at times, you'll see that Rome was more heavy-handed towards Judaism or Christianity, both. And at times, they weren't. But having an understanding, did you see all the Herods mentioned? There's a bunch of Herods in our New Testament, aren't they? This begins to explain a little bit about who they were. And so then we need to finish this very quickly. I want you to look at the provinces. We saw that on the map. You can flip back and forth. Uh, The aforementioned Herod and Cyrenius were both governors of Roman provinces. Herod of Judea and Cyrenius of Syria. These provinces, while hard to pin down to specific borders, uh, do help us navigate our way through our New Testament. And we'll see in another lesson, the Apostle Paul traveled through many of these provinces during his multiple missionary journeys in the book of Acts. All of what we consider to be biblical Asia Minor can be studied through the lens of a Roman province. Now, I realize that we haven't read a ton of Scripture today, but we've learned a lot about Scripture and how it can help us. And so I want to give some thoughts and applications just in 90 seconds. I want you to notice this. No era of human history is without the hand of God upon it, even if not directly addressed by Scripture. You and I are living in a time of human history that doesn't necessarily fall under the direct addressing of Scripture. But God's hand is still upon us. We know this because the world still spins and we we breathe. (laughs) Because we're told in Colossians, by Him all things exist or consist, right? And so God's hand is still upon us. And that's, to me, that's comforting. That even during this 400 years of silence that we talked about, though Scripture was silent concerning the historical events of those times, God was still working. God was laying the foundation. Uh, this was fascinating to me. When, when Israel was captive in Egypt, Egypt was the largest 
empire of the day. And then when Egypt was taken, or when Israel was taken by Assyria, again, the largest. When Egypt was, or when Israel was taken by Babylon, again, the largest empire of the day, and by Rome. What's your point? Is that God had a witness in the middle of the largest empire to impact the largest spread of who he was. And it's fascinating to me as you look at Israel's placement. We've talked about that months ago. Israel's placement in the Fertile Crescent as all they traveled through and in the middle of these great empires. And that's why they kept being taken over and over and over again. But even though Scripture doesn't directly address those 400 years of silence and even directly address our time period right now from a historical perspective, we know that God is still at work. I did think about this while preparing for this. My knowledge of the timeline of the Old Testament is severely lacking. And I need more 2 Timothy 2.15 in this, this area. What does that say? Study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To go along with that, another thought is deepening my understanding of the Bible will require work on my part. You say, how do you learn about what Rome was doing this time? You have to study it. It takes work. You say, I want to understand exactly what was going on in Scripture. It takes work. But it's worth it. Why? Because it's a study of God. Ultimately, it comes back down that God wants to have a relationship with His creation with you and me. But I have to put in the work. It's not a one-sided relationship. And I love this. God does not deal in coincidences. He orchestrated the time of Christ to be during Roman rule. He did. I could have added this thought about the destruction of Babylon that God takes the desecration of his house very seriously. There's some churches, churches that need to consider that as they go to worship. I don't think they're worshiping in spirit and truth this morning in America. That God takes the desecration of his house very seriously as evidence of the destruction of Babylon because of what they did to his temple. So I hope this helps you, this understanding. You can look at that final map uh, at the very end. You can see a little bit of the New Testament Roman provinces. It's just a little bit of a zoomed-in view uh, compared to the first map. Father, we thank